came across this quote this week that I thought was an appropriate reminder of where we've been in Philippians just recently. It says, This poor world, full of sin, sorrow, pain, and death, if we had this life only, we would be most miserable. But the Christian has an unfailing hope of a holier, happier, sublimer, and more durable world than this. This hope supports him in every scene of earthly conflict and distress. Well, this morning we continue our studies in the book of Philippians. We were reminded a couple of weeks ago that we are citizens of heaven. As citizens of heaven, we're looking forward to the return of our Savior King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming. And his coming will mean our full redemption. We will be like him. We will be like him both in the practical expression of his righteousness, meaning we will do all things righteously. As we saw two weeks ago, we'll also be like him in glory. Our physical bodies will be changed, and really they must be. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is the Christian hope, the hope of a kingdom to come, that holier, happier, sublimer, and more durable world than this one. This is the hope that, again, as it said, supports us in every scene of earthly conflict, conflict and distress. We will be like him. As I mentioned many times before, this hope of our full redemption, our final redemption, ought to make a difference in our everyday lives. We ought to be different in our dealings with the world, knowing that we have such a hope. Our heavenly citizenship in the coming kingdom commands our attention daily. I reference Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above. Set your mind on the things above, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then he goes on to say, therefore put off immorality and put on the new man. We ought to be living today in light of our life to come. This is especially important as we consider that the church was left here by the Lord for the purpose of spreading the gospel. Make disciples of all nations with the charge of our Savior King, Jesus. The church of Philippi understood that as they were recipients of gospel ministry through Paul. And then as they continued to partner with Paul in his gospel ministry. We ought to be living in light of the life to come. We ought to do so with joy. But we know that there are times when, as citizens of heaven, who have the hope of the life to come, when the ways of this world, the trials, the challenges, both inside and outside of the church, when those things disrupt our joy. There are times when we struggle to rejoice, times when we struggle to maintain that unity that we have in the spirit, times that we're simply not at peace. The question that we have to answer this morning is how can we have peace when there are so many things to disrupt us in life? How can we joyfully pursue gospel ministry together as citizens of the kingdom when there is no peace? Paul addresses that issue this morning in our text. If you haven't, go ahead and turn to Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read that. We'll read it together and then we'll start to get into the message here. Philippians 4. Verses 1 through 9. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, the God of peace, we pray this morning that you would speak through your word. Uh, Lord, your servants are listening this morning. We pray that you would speak. Your servants are listening. We pray that you would give us a listening heart to hear from your word. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would indeed be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in this text, we are reminded that we must be a people of peace as citizens of the kingdom. That's the message of these nine verses. In verses one through three, Paul will remind us of the reasons that we must abide in peace. And then in verses four through nine, he's going to give us the resources We have the reason and then the resources for peace as citizens of the kingdom. Let's look at that first point, the reasons why we are to pursue peace in verses 1 through 3. Look at those again with me. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odea, and I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. The issue in this text is peace. Now, we have discussed joy frequently, but up until this point, not so much peace. Why is peace so significant? Turn with me just quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 22. I just want to read through that for your hearing this morning. Paul is talking about the church in Ephesians. He's talking about what the church is, what it looks like, how it was formed, why it's so significant, what God is doing to build the church. And in this section, he's talking about how God has built the church with two groups of people who really shouldn't be together, who historically have never been together, Jews and Gentiles. There was this enmity between them, this great separation, this dividing wall between them. And usually it's centered around the fact that the Jews had the law, they had the covenants, they had the promises, and the Gentiles were separate. They were outsiders. So Jews really didn't have a lot of dealings with Gentiles. But God is doing something different in the church, and that's part of Paul's point. Look at verse 11. And when he, when he says Gentiles here, just to make sure that we're all clear, that's us. <laughs> Right. Um, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place, For God in the spirit. And just as a quick reminder, the church building is not the church. This is just where we gather, right? The church is the people. And that's part of Paul's point here. God is building his church, not a a building with brick and mortar, but flesh. He's bringing people together to build his church. And we are evidence of that. And because he has, through the Lord Jesus made peace with God through the blood of his cross for each of us. That means that he's done that for each of us and each of us together are now a part of that church. He's broken down the divider, the thing that divided us from God. He's also broken down the divider, the thing that divided us from each other because he's brought us together to make one new man in the church. So there ought to be peace. And that idea, that concept is what Paul is building off of in our text. Again, he has given us more than just creating us in Christ Jesus. We're being made as a dwelling place for his spirit. We're reminded in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the spirit is peace, right? Love, joy, peace. We talked about joy before. We ought to be peace and we ought to be at peace. We ought to have peace in our hearts and we ought to be at peace with one another. The world doesn't know this peace. The world is always trying to talk about unity and talk about peace and trying to achieve peace. But it's never going to achieve this kind of peace. They don't know the Prince of Peace. The church is the bride of the Prince of Peace. Again, thus, We ought to be a people of peace. It ought to characterize us. We ought to be a people at peace, especially with one another and our dealings with one another. Go back in our text. Paul is exhorting the church to peace. Look what he says again in verse 1. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm. Do not be moved. Don't be shaken. Abide. Remain. Continue. Stand firm thus. Stand firm in this way. Well, what way? Verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He's calling them to agree. He's calling them to like-mindedness. Be like-minded. In other words, be at peace with one another and stand firm in the Lord in this way. 
The word for entreat there suggests a very strong plea. There's a sense of urgency in Paul's tone. We must be at peace as the people of God. I said before during the introduction to this letter and multiple times throughout our study, that there was clearly some kind of internal strife amiss in the church. Paul wrote, among other things, to address the internal strife. Here he directly addresses two women in the church around whom this conflict was apparently revolving. And we don't know exactly what the issue was, and it really doesn't matter. Suffice it to say, it was significant enough that Paul needed to make like-mindedness a main theme in the letter. And we see that throughout. Chapter 1, verse 27, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what was the mind he was talking about there? He was talking about a mind of humility, as that is what Jesus displayed in coming in the flesh and dying on a cross. Chapter 3, verse 16, let those of us who are mature think this way. And the context there, he was talking about pressing towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. We need to have the same mind. And here in our text, we need to agree in the Lord. Again, this was a significant enough issue for Paul to call these women out directly in the letter and to tell them, you need to agree in the Lord. Why must we agree? What is so significant that he calls out these two poor ladies who had a disagreement with one another? Well, if we were to speculate, perhaps they were leading women in the church or leading women in the city whose influence was significant enough that their disagreement caused a great issue for the church as a whole. Regardless of what the issue was, Paul says that you must agree, and he gives us the reasons why in the text. The first one ought to be pretty clear. We ought to agree. We ought to have peace because we're citizens of the kingdom. Again, look back at verse 1. He's continuing his previous thought. He says, therefore, my brothers. Of course, whenever you see a therefore in the text, you have to look back and see what it's there for. Since all of what he said before is true, therefore. And again, he was just talking about the fact that we are citizens of the kingdom. And we have something in common to look forward to. We're all going to be made like him, made like Christ, transformed into his likeness. He says to them in this text that you ought to stand firm in the Lord. You are to agree in the Lord. We are in the Lord. We are in his kingdom. We are members of his kingdom together collectively. We cannot live like the world. We have the mind of Christ, the life of Christ within us. Our lives collectively as a body of Christ ought to look different. Unity ought to characterize Christ's church. I've referenced the text in Ephesians 4 before. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We had Ephesians 2 right before that, right? That talked about how God brings together people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he puts them into one body. And he makes one building, one dwelling place for the spirit out of them. Thus, there ought to be peace. There is peace because God brings us together and we ought to be diligent to preserve that peace. When we do not, it's usually because our heart motives are not right. Often we come to church 
with the expectation that we're going to get our way, that our own personal interests should be met, that we are the most important person whose needs need to be met. We have a very inflated view of ourselves at times and our interests. Paul says, again in chapter 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's how we ought to be thinking. Perhaps there's not some ulterior motive, but it may just be that the stresses of the day, the trials, the persecution, the sickness that we endure, the cumulative effect of these difficulties surrounding us, turn up the pressure enough that we feel the need to control something. And so at times we lash out at those who are closest around us to try to gain that kind of control. At least a conflict instead of disagreement. Well, the word of God in our text says that we ought to seek to agree in the Lord. This should be our default. We need to be agreeable people. We should be striving for that. We should stand firm in that as citizens of the kingdom. But another reason why we ought to be at peace is clear in Paul's words as he continues. Not only should we be at peace as citizens of the kingdom, but we ought to abide in peace because we're brothers and sisters of one another. We're members of the same body. We're placed in this body to do the same ministry, the gospel ministry that we've been called to. Paul shows this first by example. He calls them my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. And later he refers to them as my beloved. These are not words from a robot who's simply spouting the company line. These are not words from a college professor who's lecturing to his students. He's reminding them of his care for them, his love for them as a result of their collective partnership in the gospel. We've talked about this many times before. But they are recipients of the gospel, saved through Paul's ministry. And they've persisted in the gospel ministry with him. And this has helped to further develop their relationship with him. And by example, Paul is reminding them that love ought to permeate all of their dealings with each other as citizens of the kingdom. He even prayed for them earlier that they abound more and more in love. Of course, his example of sitting there in prison and thinking not of himself but this dear church and thinking so much of them that he writes this letter for their joy this is the family of God beloved we are all brothers and sisters in Christ we call each other brother so and so and sister so and so not simply because it's a title and that's what good Christians do but because it's true We don't call each other Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. Such-and-such. Sometimes we may do that out of respect. We don't refer to each other as Dr. So-and-so or Captain Such-and-such, thinking about the, the titles that we have in the world, because those are not so important here. We don't do that any more here than we do at home, right? You don't call your, your father, who's a doctor, Dr. Dr. Dad, right? <laughs> we use familial terms with family. Paul says again, my brothers whom I love and long for. He refers to them as his joy and crown because serving them brought joy to his heart. It was a crown placed on his head. He calls them my beloved. He treasures them. He values them. He cares for them as family. That is how we ought to be with one another in the body of Christ. Thus again, we ought to pursue peace. 
He goes on in verse 3, yes, my example, but also the reality is that you all have been serving with one another for some time. Yes, you also, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He says, we've all labored together for the same thing. You've labored side by side with me and this other fellow named Clement. And all of the other gospel workers, this is not new. We've been doing this gospel ministry together already. You can work together. You've already shown your commitment to gospel ministry. Remember that. Remember the mission of the church is to make disciples of all nations. Those are the words of our commander in chief. Matthew Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20. That is of primary importance. There's no way for us to achieve this goal of spreading the gospel if we have a lo- as a local assembly have two separate heads. If we're headed in two separate directions. If we're not of the same mind, of the same heart, the same desire. The gospel is of first important. Other things are flexible. This is so important, in fact, that he calls for help in this text. Again, he says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also, help these women. And we don't know who the true companion is. It doesn't really matter. It could have been Epaphroditus who brought the letter to them. It could have been another elder or deacon. But the point is, Paul is saying that it's not theirs alone to deal with, that they must have help. We must get involved when there's conflict. The business of the body of Christ is the body of Christ. We cannot, as Cain replied to the Lord, am I my brother's keeper? Because we are. We are to keep one another. We are to, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, be admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, and being patient with everyone. Conflict in the body of Christ cannot be allowed to linger. And we must, each one of us, must be a part of finding the solution. It's our responsibility. That's our duty as members, as brothers and sisters. Not to gossip, but to pursue, to help, to love. Paul also says that our names are collectively written in the book of life. Thus again, we have responsibility to one another, to love one another, to pursue one another, to stand firm and to pursue peace. This is what we've been called to as citizens of the kingdom, as brothers and sisters in the gospel ministry. One author put it this way, we stand firm by being united in one mind and one spirit. We cannot stand firm divided and alone. We stand firm when we're linked arm in arm, heart with heart in our community of brothers and sisters. This understanding of what it means to stand firm is encapsulated by the prepositional phrase in the Lord. To stand firm in the Lord means that we remain strong and resolute in union with our Lord by exhibiting his lordship over our lives, by following our Lord's way to the cross and by walking in unity with each other in our corporate union with our Lord. That's how we do it. That's how we stand firm in the Lord. Well, we have the reasons why we ought to pursue peace. We're brothers and sisters of one another. We're citizens of the kingdom. Peace ought to characterize us as the body of Christ. Now we have the resources. God doesn't just leave us alone to figure it out on our own. He gives us resources to aid us in pursuing peace in the body of Christ. Look back again at verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, we'll only get to three of these this morning. There are five total. Let's take a look at resource number one, and that is joy. Again, chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Joy is a resource that God has given He has provided to citizens of the kingdom to help them to abide in peace in the midst of the most dire circumstances. In the context, again, there was clear disagreement between these two women, but it could have been disagreement between anyone in the church. The point is that the way to peace when there's disagreement is to focus on the things for which you do agree. Start there. And here they can both and all of us should both be able to agree that we can rejoice in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Remember, biblical joy is a work of the spirit which causes us to delight in God and the things of God. It is God-focused, God-sourced, and God-sustained. It is a stirring of the affections toward God and his affairs. We've addressed the subject of joy frequently throughout our study. We can rejoice in the Lord always because joy is of the Lord and the focus is the Lord. The Lord himself never changes, so our joy in him can never be affected by external circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's a command. Choosing to rejoice in the Lord forces you to stop thinking about yourself and to start thinking about someone greater. One author said it this way. Joyful praise to the Lord leads leads friends to set aside grievances in order to worship the Lord in unity. In contrast, a bitter, belligerent spirit that drives people apart, a sweet, exuberant spirit brings people together. Just read social media and you'll see that belligerent spirit in full full force, full effect. If you are in the midst of conflict with a brother or sister and you both stop thinking about yourselves and start thinking about the Lord, then you can find a path forward. Now, certainly it's not always that simple, and sometimes, depending on the issue, joy is going to be a struggle, right? How do we rejoice in him when we don't feel like it? I've said this before, but you have to fight for it. You have to labor for it. Part of what that involves is thinking on who the Lord is. We consider him and think on who he is. In context, again, Paul made a point of highlighting the humility of Jesus in Philippians 2. Contrary to the ways of the world, the path to glory is not by exalting yourself over others, but it's by humbling yourself before God. Jesus humbled himself by becoming fully man. And he humbled himself by dying a criminal's death on the cross for us. And the text there says, for this reason, God has highly exalted him. Paul said, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think on Jesus. Be like Jesus. Think on who he is. His attitude of humility has led to his glory. Thinking of his attitude of humility ought to lead to praise. 
I have a good king, a glorious king, a humble king, a king who existed in the form of God, but who condescended to take on the form of a man. A king who, though he deserves the praise from myriads and myriads, died a criminal's death on the cross. If he can humble himself this way, so can I. If he did humble himself this way, so must I. These things ought to lead to praise. They ought to lead to action. Fighting for joy also involves committing to, as Paul said earlier in the letter, doing all things without grumbling or disputing. You can't grumble and dispute about some momentary affliction that you endure, knowing that King Jesus humbled himself in the flesh on the cross without grumbling and disputing. The text says that he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't utter a word back in response to their foolishness, to their taunting, because he knew what he came for. In Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame of it. If he can do that, so can we. Perhaps you still cannot bring yourself to rejoice. Remember that in context, the issue is conflict within the body. So when Paul gives the command to rejoice, it is to the community together. If you are struggling with joy, let someone else know about it. There's no shame in it because we all struggle with joy. Tell somebody else about it. Say, hey, I need help. I know I ought to be rejoicing in the Lord. I know that it's good for me to have joy in the Lord, but I'm struggling with this. Pray for me. What do you do? How do you maintain your joy? How do you fight for joy? Talk to someone about it. Ask for help. Because we're all brothers and sisters with one another. We're members of the body of Christ. A resource number two, his presence. Look at verse five. Let your reasonableness to know, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The definition in the Greek dictionary for this word translated reasonableness reads as follows. Quote, not insisting on every right of letter, of law, or custom, yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. That's what it means to be reasonable. Not insisting on every right of letter, law, or custom, being yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. Is that you? I wonder, do you insist upon every right of letter or of law or of custom? Do you insist that every letter of law is fulfilled as you see it? That everyone abide by your wishes? If so, then it is no wonder that you cannot find peace. It is no wonder that you can't find peace in the body, that you can't find peace in relationships at home with friends in the workplace. Because you believe that you always have the right perspective. And if everyone would just see it the way you see it, we'd all be better off, right? If you are a believer, then you ought to be reasonable, not insisting on every right of letter or law or custom. The American way is not the Christian way. The American way says fight for your rights, stand up for your rights, insist upon your rights. And even if it's not an actual right on the book, invent a new right and make everyone celebrate it. Shame those who disagree. 
You, Christian, citizen of heaven, ought to be yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have and express an opinion. You can and you may. But you should keep your opinion as your opinion, not as a law for everyone else that you stubbornly insist upon. That's often what prevents peace. And notice that your reasonableness should be evident to all. We should be able to ask someone from your workplace, someone who's a casual acquaintance, a friend, a member of a family at home, a brother or sister in the church, anyone from your circle of influence should know you to be reasonable. Again, yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. Your reasonableness should be evident to everyone. The question may also be raised. Should I just bow down to everyone and yield to everyone? If I do, then what? What about my rights, my wants, my thoughts? Are they not valid? Well, they may be valid, but the point is that you don't always need to get what you want. And just in case there is such an issue that robs you of something, an issue that causes you to miss out on something, the Lord makes a provision for us. Again, the immediate context is the local church, but our reasonableness should be known to all. So perhaps it's not an interpersonal conflict, but persecution for Christ's sake. Perhaps your rights are being infringed upon in some way, your civil or religious liberties. Now you've said your peace, you've stood for the truth, but in the interest of seeking to be reasonable, you have to give up some right of yours. Because that could happen. What is our comfort in the midst of loss? Look back at the verse. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. The Lord is with us. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saved those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. This is the young child who boldly sets out into the world to explore, but instinctively knows to rush back and cling to mom and dad, whoever is near, whenever there's trouble. The Lord is near. In other words, it's ultimately okay that we don't always get our way. It's okay to be yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant, not insisting on every letter of law or custom because the Lord is with us. And if he is with us, then we have everything we need. Even if we lose everything, even if we lose our lives, we have everything we need if we have the Lord Jesus Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, resource number one was joy. Resource number two is the Lord's presence. Resource number three is prayer. Verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When your peace is threatened, pray. First of all, Paul acknowledges here that there is such a thing as anxiety. The way that this is written suggests that he knew that they were being anxious and wanted to encourage them to stop being anxious. Far too often do we as Christians pretend that nothing ever bothers us. We pretend that we should be able to say that everything is good, everything is well, or at least that's what we tell people, even if on the inside we're a wreck. The word that is translated anxiety for our text this morning means to be apprehensive or unduly concerned about something. I think that's interesting. 
to be apprehensive or unduly concerned, to be preoccupied, to have our mind arrested by this one thing to the degree that often there is unnecessary harm. It's sometimes translated by the English word worry. And worry itself has an interesting etymology. One author said it this way, the old English root from which we get our word worry means to strangle. If you've ever really worried, you know how it does strangle a person. In fact, worry has a definite physical consequence. Headaches, neck pains, ulcers, even back pains. Worry affects our thinking, our digestion, even our coordination. I think that's an apt description of worry or anxiety. Anxiety is indeed a plague in the life of man. Once it takes hold, it can become in him paralyzing, terrorizing, even deadly. If you've had anxiety about something, then you know it can put a stranglehold on your mind, your heart, and affect your body in various ways. Well, God knows that this is true of us and anxiety. Anxiety and all that does to the soul threatens to undermine peace within the body of Christ, whether it be on an individual level or corporately. Thus, this text aims to teach us how to respond to anxiety. And in case it's not clear already, I want to make emphatically clear that anxiety is not something to be ashamed of. All of us have it. All of us struggle with it. That's why the text addresses it. Anxiety happens, but prayer is the resource. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The two words here for prayer and supplication are virtually synonymous. By prayer, if there was a distinction between the two words, this would suggest petition to a deity. It is a humble acknowledgement that all things come from the hand of God. He is our benefactor. Prayer is the ultimate sign of dependence and submission to God. He says by prayer and supplication. We know what that means. It's making urgent requests. He says to do it with thanksgiving. Of course, we know what that means. And it's an intentional giving of thanks. And what's so significant is that the act of giving a thanks requires you to do what? It requires you to think about what you have to be thankful for. So in the midst of your anxiety, your struggle, something is missing, something's not happening, something's being taken away, something bad might happen in the future, pray with thanksgiving. God has provided this for me in the past. God, I thank you for that. You've done that for me in the past. Your mercies every morning have been new and have been renewed. God is Faithful. I've seen his faithfulness in all these different ways in times past. You know what? I know that he's going to be faithful in the future. Pray with thanksgiving. This is the opposite of grumbling and disputing. Prayer involves ultimately, as Paul says in our text, letting your requests be made known to God. It's all of what we do in our Godward communication. You know, we provide you with a pattern of prayer during our service. The service is intentionally designed to encourage you to pray, to teach you how to pray. We include a season of praise, simply praising God for who he is. Some refer to this as adoration, where we're simply thinking on the person of God and praising him for who he is. We include a season of confession, where in response to the word of God, we confess that we often fall short. This is not confession in the Catholic sense. We're confessing as a means of agreeing with God and searching the scriptures as we desire to apply them to our lives, acknowledging that we've not attained that standard of perfection. 
We have a season of thanksgiving, simply thanking God for his provisions, again, in times past. This pattern has often been described as acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We do it in that order. The order is not inspired. It just makes sense. And we do that to hopefully encourage you all as you are seeking to pray. If you don't know how to pray, you can easily follow that pattern. Adoration, praising God, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Nevertheless, we must pray. Again, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Romans 12.12, be devoted to prayer. 1 Peter 5.6, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus' words in Matthew, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. The thought that believers wouldn't pray would have been incomprehensible to Jesus and the apostles. Jesus himself was a man of prayer, often rising early and going off alone. He taught that pattern to the apostles. We pray the Lord's Prayer even today. And every one of the apostles seemed to have a pattern of prayer. I came across this quote on social media the other day. And I read this. It's rude not to respond when someone has spoken to you. That is what prayerlessness is. I remember working really hard as parents with all of our children to ensure that when someone spoke to them, they responded. Because it is rude. We all know that, right? We tend to excuse it in children, but really we shouldn't if we want them to be people who grow up and, and respond appropriately to others when they're spoken to. If we know that that should be true, then why do we as adults excuse ourselves for not responding to God who has spoken to us? We must pray. Again, to the point of the passage, when we're anxious, we must pray. And as we pray, God gives a promise which makes this resource so precious and valuable. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is not a promise that all of your requests will be answered in the way you want. This is a promise for something better. This is a promise for the peace of God. The peace of God is an incomprehensible peace, an unfathomable peace, a peace which surpasses all understanding, he says. When you're anxious, pray. And when you pray, God promises to provide you with his peace. Paul will say later, he is the God of peace. The Old Testament idea of peace or shalom had a concrete idea of wholeness. Something is broken and then it is made whole. We talk about our hearts being broken, our minds being fractured when we're in the throes of anxieties and its effects. Shalom or peace, the peace of God is a promise of wholeness, the promise that God will make you whole. Again, not necessarily that you'll get what you ask for, but rather that he'll make you whole in the midst of it. God will heal you in the midst of it. He will give you his peace in Christ. Again, Jesus is the prince of peace. Look back at the text. This is the function of his peace. It says his peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The word for guard there is the same that is typically used as a military term to represent a garrison. A garrison is a group of soldiers placed in a particular area of a city or town to protect them. The peace of God then will act as a garrison for the hearts and minds of believers in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I'm anxious, my heart can become overwhelmed. My mind can go off in a thousand different directions. There's no peace for it. 
This morning, as I was preparing to come to preach this sermon, I misplaced my keys, and so I'm looking frantically for my keys. My family's sitting out in the van waiting for me, and I'm like, what in the world happened to my keys? And I'm going crazy because I can't find my keys. And they were sitting on my nightstand by my bed. But I usually put things in the same place, and when I don't put things in the same place, this inevitably happens. And so I'm going crazy. I'm going out of my mind looking for these keys, frantically searching and remembering that I'm about to preach a sermon about peace and being totally convicted by that. Now, that's just a small, fairly insignificant example, but we all know that anxiety can be overwhelming at times. It affects our physical health, even to the degree that sometimes medication is needed. But the reality is it's often where it starts. It starts in the heart and mind, right? But God, the God who created us, who knows us, who, who knows you, who knows me, who's intimately acquainted with all of our ways, he knows that this is true, and so he provides us with a promise of peace. These two women were struggling in their relationship with each other. Whatever the disagreement was undoubtedly causing anxiety. And for that reason, Paul says to them, guys, we need to pray. You two need to pray about this. We need to pray about this as a congregation. I have kind of an extended quote here, an author just talking about our need for prayer. He says, prayer is our openness about our needs before God, our emptiness in his his presence, our absolute dependence upon him with an attitude of constant thanksgiving and complete trust. When we pray with that attitude, the focus is not at all upon what we are doing or will do, but on what God will do. God will do something supernatural or beyond our best abilities and thoughts. The peace of God will guard us. Peace is always the gift of God rather than humanly achieved or devised. He goes on, the peace of God is the opposite of anxiety. God himself is not beset with weaknesses, with anxieties. For he knows the end from the beginning and directs all things in accordance with his will. When we trust God in prayer, God gives to us his peace to guard our hearts and minds against anxious thoughts. The question is, do you trust God to take care of you in the midst of your anxiety? James says, if anyone is lacking wisdom, let him what? Let him ask of God. But let him ask in faith without doubting. The one who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man shouldn't think that he's going to receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Do you trust him to give you peace in the midst of your anxieties? Whatever the issue is, do you trust him with it? Give it to him. Cast those cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's the point. We must pray. And again, to the point of this section, we must pray for one another. How different do you think the conflict between these two women would have been if they had stopped and labored in prayer for one another? Not to be right, not to be heard, but if they stopped and prayed for one another. How might our fellowship be different? How might our gospel ministry to the lost be different if when each of us prayed, we were concerned not only with our own interests, but also the interests of one another? If we prayed fervently, not simply to have our needs met, but the needs of one another. If we prayed that the Lord would guard each of our hearts and minds collectively as we go through the ups and downs of life. 
We provide the membership directory not just so that we can see each other's smiling faces, but so that we can be in prayer for one another. Ephesians 6.18, Paul's talking about spiritual warfare. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Notice the alls in that passage. All prayer and petition at all times with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Are you praying at all times in the spirit? Are you on the alert with all perseverance for all the saints as you pray? If you haven't today, before you go, I would encourage you to speak with someone you usually don't speak to. Just ask for one prayer request and commit to praying for that one thing this week. Perhaps you do that already. I'd encourage you to excel and persevere in prayer for one another and for our congregation. Pray for our involvement in this upcoming 4th of July festival and for our gospel witness in general in the community. Pray for unity in the body of Christ. Pray for the Lord to raise up godly elders and deacons. Pray that we would never compromise biblical truth. Seems to be happening more increasingly in the church. Pray for the ministry of the word. Whatever you do, pray. And as you pray, remember that as Paul says, we pray to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And to him will be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Again, we ought to be at peace as citizens of the kingdom. We ought to be at peace as brothers and sisters of one another. God provides us with resources for our peace. He provides us with joy, his presence, prayer, and we'll pick back up here next week. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, which is true, your word, which sanctifies us. We thank you for the reminder of your peace, the peace that you give us in the body of Christ with one another the peace that you give us through your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, for the peace that we can have with one another and we ought to pursue with one another in the body of Christ. We thank you for the resources that you give us for our peace. We thank you for the joy that we can have in you. We thank you for your abiding presence. We thank you for the privilege of prayer. Help us to make use of these resources, both for your glory and for our good in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.